Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Today we're talking with Master Horner Art DeCamp about his history in muzzleloading, his passion for traditional crafts, and his several decades now of traditional horn work, and how it relates to, to him as an artist and to the community as a whole. Uh, Art is a, a really nice guy, uh, really, I think, forward-thinking about his research and how he shares his research uh, with students at multiple classes every year. I really do truly hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed sitting down and talking with Art. Hey, I'm Art DeCamp, and uh, I live uh, currently in LaGrange, Georgia. I've been involved in uh, muzzle-loading things for most of my life because I started uh, having an interest in muzzle-loaders uh, because my dad was a collector of a wide range of antique firearms when I was growing up, and I can remember a Kentucky rifle and a particular powder horn hanging on our uh, over our fireplace mantle, uh, from probably the time I was three or four years old, uh, I, I went to my first 4th of July muzzle-loading shoot when I was five, uh, back in 1956. And wow. I started going to, to gun shows with my dad when I was about seven. And so, uh, that means I guess I've been going to gun shows for almost 66 years or something like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> That makes me sound pretty old, I think. You know? No, so, no. Um, Spring chicken. But anyway, um, you know, I was always, in, in spite of all of the array of different guns that I got exposed to as a kid through my dad's collecting, um, I was always drawn to the, the grace and the beauty of a Kentucky rifle. And and later on, I started uh, um, being having an interest naturally in powder horns because they went along with it. Uh, when I was in second grade, actually, I took a powder horn with me to school on the school bus for show and tell in second grade. Wow. <laughs> so I guess I was predestined in some way to deal with powder horns later on in my life as I do now. <laughs> wow. I don't think you could do that today. It might be no, especially not with powder in it. <laughs> <laughs> there was powder in it too. Yeah, there was powder in it. Yeah, I'd, oh, I'd have been in jail for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Wow. Do you remember what kind of horn it was? Well, I still have it. In oh, fact. you do? It, it okay. Was just a little. It was a little small pocket horn. You know, not intended to be on a bag or anything, and uh, you know, no staple or any uh, you know attachment feature on it. And uh, I actually still have it in my collection. Believe it or not. Wow, and that's very special. It, I'm so pretty, happy to hear pretty that. Pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I grew up in uh, West Lafayette, Indiana, and okay. of course we were close to um, the. Um, Battle of Tippecanoe site there where Harrison defeated the, the Shawnee Indians led by uh, actually, you know, Tecumseh's mm -hmm. Indians. But he was away at the time and, and his brother, the prophet, was the one that was forcing the attack and everything. So, you know, we used to go there and and have picnics and explore those grounds. And um, my my home at my boyhood home was a mile away from. Fort Wiatnon, where the Feast of the Hunter's Moon is held every year nowadays. And so I used to ride my bike down there and play along the river right where that fort is. So, oh, wow. I, you know, so this stuff is kind of, you know, I was exposed to some of this stuff real early on. And, and I guess that probably had an impact on my interest in history, uh, especially of the those time periods and also of the uh, muzzle-loading rifles that went along with it. Wow. So you were just 
it was all around you. It sounds like from the start. I mean, if you had gotten away from it, you would have had to really work at it to, to steer away. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, you don't know my, I grew up, you know, equally with my younger brother and he didn't pick up the interest. So it's an individual thing that, 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 you know, sticks with you in some ways and it stuck with me and, and didn't stick with my brother, but, um, you know, that you just never know what your children are going to grow up to be or grow up to be interested in. And this certainly this interest in history and and things and so forth has certainly been something that I've had my entire life, I guess you'd say. So kind of going from taking a powder horn to your second grade show and tell, where was kind of the next step for you in, in muzzleloading and, and the traditional crafts that are associated with it? Was it when you were a teenager or was it a little bit later for you to well, kind of take probably, the next jump? Um, Ethan, it was probably in my mid-teen years. Um, a friend of my dad's who was a very accomplished rifle maker of that period uh, came by the house and, and displayed two rifles he had made. Uh, th this fellow was a guy named T.K. Tom Dawson, mm. and he was from out near Williamsport, Indiana, and li lived in a little town called Marshfield, Indiana. And and he, he had a Hawken rifle that he had built that was – a uh, very exacting uh, replica of real uh, real Hawken, um, and you know he is he's he was a friend of John Baird's and and was written up in some of those books about the Hawken rifle that uh, Baird wrote mm -hmm. uh, back in the early '60s and and then the other rifle that Tom had with him the day visit us was his uh, well known copy of the Edward Marshall rifle. And, and he talked about how he had gone out to the Mercer Museum in Pennsylvania and traced the rifle and taken rubbings off all of the inlays and measured it precisely and everything. And he'd gone back and then made a copy of the rifle right down to the nicks and dents and cracks that were in the stock and so on. And that left an impression on me that you know, at that point, I wasn't into building rifles or even collecting yet because I was probably 16 or 17 at that time. And you know, fast forward another 12 years and um, a guy that I worked with brought a, a Thompson Center kit he had built to work to show it off one day. And and I thought, well, shoot. I could probably make a wife do a little better job than that. <laughs> and, and that started me building muzzle-loading rifles. I started with a, a CVA mountain rifle kit and, and quickly realized that it didn't have the proper shape or feel to, to be correct to an original feeling uh, half-stock rifle. And that led to building several more rifles. And uh, I started building rifles in about 1980. Hmm. And, you know, I ordered parts from Dixie Gunworks and uh, Log Cabin Shop and some of those places that are still going today, providing parts for builders. And um, Tom Dawson sort of was an early mentor because I got to visit his house a couple times and show him what I'd done. And he took, wow. he was very patient and and took time to talk to me about it. And, and you know, one of the things he said to me on one of those visits, he said, I can see you have learned to take the time it takes to do the job right, as opposed to hurrying to get it done. Ah. And that's, that was probably the 
best observation and the best advice I ever got <laughs> about doing these crafts. You know, yeah. uh, it really takes a, a commitment to getting the right material, the proper material, and learning how to use and work with that material to make it come out the way you want it and to make it look authentic. And uh, that's that that's something I've tried to carry through on all of the different uh, uh, things that I've made over the years. Well, I think it certainly shows with you know your kind of storied catalog now of, of work that you've put out. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of amazing when I when I look back at some of this <laughs> stuff. You know, you kind of uh, wonder how some, you did it all. Well, yeah, and sometimes you look at the stuff you did early on and you think, my goodness, <laughs> is that bad? You know, and you think, how did anybody ever want to pay me for that or something? <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> But, but, you know, it, it's uh, each time, I think another thing you have to do, at least is, is in me anyway, is you, you have to want to make the next one better than the last one. Mm -hmm. You can never be satisfied uh, that, you know, you've achieved whatever level you set out to accomplish and, and then just write it out, so to speak. You know, you have to have a drive to want to make it improved each time. Yeah, I think that's something that really carries through with a lot of people that are interested in in muzzleloading and the traditional crafts that are associated with them. Even for me, if I go out and shoot my muzzleloader, I want the next target to be better. You know, I want <laughs> I want the next thing that I'm working on to be better. And, and that's something that I think is really great about this community is many of us share that same drive. Yeah, I agree. I, I have the same feelings when I shoot, you know, but the, <laughs> the thing about it is the thing I can, the thing that's so good for me about muzzleloading is that I can go to the range and shoot poorly and not be angry or not be upset. If I go to try to play golf, I beat myself up doing that. So oh, really? <laughs> I'm much better suited for this sport for shooting. than. So what you're saying is golf. I can invest in more muzzle loaders instead of golf clubs. Exactly. Okay. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think the best thing I ever did was gave my golf clubs away to my son-in-law about 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing cooler things now, we'll say. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That, it leaves me time to do a lot more, a lot of other things, for sure. So you're talking here about kind of 1980, you started building your own muzzleloading, kind of own long rifles. What kind of rifles were, did you start out building? Was there a particular style that piqued your interest, or was it just kind of whatever you could find the parts for? Well, um, I guess back up a little bit. Um, part of part of my interest was always trying to make whatever I built uh, authentic and and real looking, mm. so to speak, as opposed to just a fantasy piece that I dreamed up out of my own design head or whatever. Right. Um, and you know, towards that end. Um, my dad had a few Kentuckys over the years, so I got to handle them, and I kind of got a three-dimensional feel about how they should look as you hold them in your hand as opposed to just seeing pictures. But then about 1979 or so, I, uh, I, I, got, a, I got flu real bad, and I missed a couple days of work because I was so sick, and that gave me the time to start going through the Joe Kendig book, Thoughts on the Kentucky Rifle. Ah. Uh, and... And leafing through that book, I I saw lots of different makers or several different makers uh, of of Kentuckys that 
piqued my interest and uh, made me want to try to figure out how to make something as nice as those appeared in the in the book and everything. Mm -hmm. So certain makers have stood out to me over the years. John Armstrong of uh, Emmitsburg, Maryland, being probably the the strongest one in, in my level of interest, so to speak. Um, and then I had a, another friend, a friend of my dad's that also became a mentor to me that was building rifle or two along the way. And we spent many hours going back and forth and critiquing each other's work. And it, it was really helpful early on to to have someone to show uh, what you have done so far to show you where you needed to, you know, take a little more wood off or change a shape here or there a little bit and make it better and so on. Uh, so that friend, uh, Murray Cantrell, uh, was was really helpful to me. And at one point, he, spo he also sponsored me to be a member in the Kentucky Rifle Association, which gave me the opportunity to go to the annual show that that, that group holds and, and actually see real flying Kentuckys in person, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, my real interest in the beginning had, had my goal. I, I wanted to be a, a, a rifle maker, you know, the, the powder horn thing kind of happened by accident later on, you might say. Okay. I, I built, uh, you know, the first rifle I built from a pre-shaped kit came from Dixie Gunworks and it was sort of a Lancaster style. And then I did a, a Jacob Dickert Lancaster style. And then, a. I did the, I, I tried to make a replica of the famous Andrew Verner rifle and then did a, a JP Becker too. And, and in, but in between I'd made two Armstrong rifles early and, and they were the ones that really challenged me and, and, and trying to figure out how to make the rifle look correct, but also how to replicate the same hand, if you will, or style of, of wood carving and engraving and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that pushed me, you know, it made me push myself to get better, I guess you'd say along that, that line. Um, and then every time I'd make a rifle, I'd realize, well, this thing needs a powder horn to go with it. And then I, so I got into um, making a few powder horns and, and then, you know, this was probably by the mid to late eighties when I was building some powder horns and, and uh, I, I discovered that if I took one to work and showed it off a little bit, somebody would buy it from me, you know. <laughs> I wasn't selling the rifles, but I could sell my powder horns, you know. And so little by little, I started making, I started spending more and greater time applied to making powder horns and, and the rifles. Although I've made almost 30 rifles over the last 42 years, uh, you know, I, I've made a lot more powder horns than that. Okay. And, and that just, that just, people started, uh, you know, feeding, feeding the, the ego, if you will, because they wanted to buy them from me when, right. they, when I would make one, you know. You know and, a little money yeah. is a great, uh, a great driver for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It took me, it took me 20 years of doing stuff building stuff to get to the point that the hobby sort of started to pay for itself. So, <laughs> so I'm kind of like one of those rock stars, you know, in the sense that you, you work for 20 years and then all of a sudden you're an overnight sensation or whatever, you know, okay. people started to take notice if you yeah, will, of yeah. what I do, you know. So where you were working, were there just a, a high concentration of, of muzzleloading enthusiasts or art, artistic appreciators or was was it just something that they saw and they, it was unique and they, they had purchased it? 
Well, you know, I early on, I was probably like a lot of people that build, you know, muzzle-loading items. You know, you you sort of begin working at home alone, almost in a vacuum. You know, you you don't know local people that have a common interest or similar interest. Your friends are spread out around the country, mm-hmm. uh, and so you don't always, you know, you know, you you. You do it because of because you have an in, inward interest and and you until you start meeting similar people it, it's not nearly as rewarding or as fun and along those same times those same years I was working for a company that uh, and in my real real work career I was uh, I, I, we moved around quite a bit I lived in I started out living in uh, northern Indiana Valparaiso and went to a few shoots up there. Uh, before we got transferred down to near Houston, Texas, uh, and then back to Valparaiso for a few years, and then Jackson, Tennessee, and and each of those three places, um, I met people that were interested in muzzleloading, you know, and so we, but I, so I met people all over the country, but I didn't stick around very long. I kept getting <laughs> transferred, you know. Okay. Uh, and then from Jackson, Tennessee, we moved to Winter Haven, Florida, and I spent. Uh, several years down there, we got to go to the Alafia River rendezvous each year down there, and 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 would see guys I knew from around the country already uh, at that event in in the winter down in Florida. And then uh, probably the best thing that ever happened to me was I got transferred to Central Pennsylvania around 1994, and we spent 27 years living in Pennsylvania, and it's it's truly like the the epicenter of muzzleloading because. I was only I met Don and John Getz and we were only 60 miles from the barrel shop. And I met uh, my my real good buddies, Alan Martin and Mark Wheeland and and they're great rifle builders. And, and so we started feeding off of each other. And, uh, you know, I, I got into chunk shooting and and, uh, you know, all through meeting those different guys. And so uh, that was a wonderful time to, to be there and and to have others see the work you did that way. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you really started to open up and kind of find your community then during your time in Pennsylvania, you know, you had, you were, Definitely. you were there oh, long yeah. enough. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I had, uh, I had been, my dad had back in the mid sixties had purchased a, uh, an original screw tip powder horn. And, and that one item always fascinated me because I couldn't fathom how you could lathe turn a piece of a piece so irregular as a piece of cow horn uh, <laughs> and make sense out, you know, make something that looked finished and, and accurate and proper. And so towards that end, I, I had uh, also met a guy named Carl Wilburn who used to provide lots of raw horns and pre-turn butts to uh, uh, the, to the to the hobby, so to speak, in the eight, in, in the seventies and eighties and into the nineties, and um, I, I had Carl make a, a screw tip horn, one of his screw tip horns for me, thinking that if I had that to look at, perhaps I could figure out how one would do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, in about nineteen eighty nine, I bought my first lathe and decided to self teach myself how to use a lathe. And oh my. Uh, then the but but the best thing that ever happened to me from that standpoint is and I, I met Roland Cato when we moved to Pennsylvania and and Roland is is a 
a tremendous um, not you know base of knowledge oh, of, yeah. of history. Uh, he has he was um, really focused on trying to understand how how the horn making trade actually did its work. Uh, he, he's focused on understanding and replicating the actual methods that the horn makers in the 18th century used. And um, so he'd studied that for probably almost 20 years by the time I met him. And and the fact that he and I sort of hit it off as friends and, and he could see that I was really interested you know, at a level where I, I really wanted to learn how to do this stuff rather than just for academic purposes, shall we say, or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, so he took, he, he was so good to me over the years uh, in that he was always willing to share anything he knew about it with me, never held anything back uh, and, and has just been a great mentor and, and now great friend for life you know over the years that we have you know we've been collaborating together on teaching classes for probably 12 years now or something like that and maybe longer even and uh you know he and i can needle each other and just have a great time with each other and uh, uh i've learned so much about the the real true proper authentic ways of doing horn work through roland and been able to carry that forward in in the things that I make. That that sounds just like a a really powerful friendship, especially now like <laughs> that you've been teaching and educating others in these ways. I mean, it would be one thing for you to to make the beautiful work that you do, uh, and and just kind of keep it to yourself, which it would be understandable. I mean, you put a lot of time and a lot of effort into that, but I know I appreciate it. I'm sure all of your students appreciate that you've taken the time to, to share that and get other people going on, on, on the right foot, we'll say on, on how to understand this stuff and, and how to move forward with it. I mean, there's more than one way to skin a cat, but taking a class on how to skin a cat's going to make it a little bit easier, I think, to, to figure it out rather than kind of starting from, you know, page one, we'll say. Yeah, that's you're very you're very accurate on that. Uh, you know, Roland and I each approach how, what we do almost from opposite directions. But okay. We, and, and so we needle each other during the class. And this, you know, this he yells at me sometimes because he thinks I'm doing something wrong, or or I'm driving him up the wall because I'm being too accurate. And and I I yell at him for the opposite. <laughs> He's a little bit careless sometimes, um, <laughs> but we both do great work, and and uh, and it shows the students in our classes that there isn't just there is no one right way to do it, but there are certain things you have to do to make it come out, make whatever job you're doing come out properly, you know. Right. And and uh, the the other thing I was going to comment that you you were touching on there a minute ago is. Um, you know, philosophically, I've, I've never been, you know, I wouldn't have learned what I've learned if I hadn't met people that were willing to share their knowledge of how to do it with me. Uh, there are, there are always certain artisans along the way that you meet that seem to be fearful of sharing what they know, uh, apparently because they think maybe that'll hurt their sales or hurt their ability to sell what they make. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I guess I've always felt different than that because I, I'm more than willing to share anything I know with anybody that's genuinely interested. And 
my thought is that irregardless of whether I tell them all my secrets or not, that person still has to be able to go and execute as well as I do. And, and not everyone can do that, you know, and, and one of the good things I think about the, the muzzleloading hobby, uh, you know, there's lots of guys that make powder horns that are very nice and very high quality. And, and each of us still is able to sell our products because the people that come and want to buy them, not everybody likes the same style, you know? Yes. So they try, you know, certain, some guys want a authentic screw tip like I make, and some guys want a maybe a little more fancy, um, a contemporarily engraved horn or something and and so it's good that customers have varied interests i guess you'd say yeah it, it helps support i guess the the artistic side of it i mean there's uh I, I i know a lot of folks out there that kind of just do it on the side you know it's a little extra spending money here and there but without those sales without those people interested in in having a unique handmade item i think you'd have a lot fewer people uh, making just anything in the muzzleloading hobby you know whether it's right. horns or yeah. bags or, or or rifles even but there's so much room and there's so much varied interest in the sport. And I think it's, it's really great that you can have, you can go to something like the CLA show and see a, a, a really wide swath, we'll say of the kind of items that you can carry around in the woods, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, if everybody liked only one type of rifle and only one type of powder horn or one type of hunting pouch, it'd be pretty boring world. You know? Yes, that's <laughs> so. exactly right. <laughs> And it's nice because then, uh, you know, I can save up to try to have one of each someday, you know, <laughs> if I hit the lottery. Oh, yeah. Here. <laughs> yeah. And, yes. And, you know, it's it's so neat to go out in the woods and carry that stuff that's been handmade and at a quality level. Uh, you know, you may not see a deer that day or something, but it's always just a neat experience to be out there using that those items and getting to carry them and enjoy them, you know. Yeah. It's a little bit of a side note here, but a deer season, as we're talking, is kind of opening up. Uh, what do you go out and, and deer hunt with when it comes to, to muzzleloading? Well, right now, I mean, I use whatever rifle I happen to have. And right <laughs> now, the because uh, the, the, rifles come and go sometimes. Right, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the one rifle that I've held on to for the last several years was is a... Uh, a John Armstrong style rifle that I made that was actually the one that I won best to show with at the, at Dixon's back in 2017. Okay. And so, so it's a 50 caliber, uh, Maryland style rifle in the, in the style of John Armstrong. And, uh, it's of course a flintlock and, and, uh, uh, that's the one I am currently hunting with. That's great. I mean, I must admit, I, I have to admit, you know, in, in, in the name of full disclosure, I, I have been known to also hunt with uh, a modern firearms too. So. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> no, we won't we won't tar and feather you for that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Good. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. I've talked about Thor Bullets for over a year now, and uh, and I'd like to thank them again for their sponsorship. 
I have since, in this amount of time, went out and tested these bullets on my range. I have not gone hunting with them, but in my penetration testing and my accuracy testing with my CVA Acura LRV2, I have to say that the Thor Hammer bullet size to my bore for that Acura do a phenomenal job. I have sub one inch groups at 100 yards if I do what I'm doing. Uh, right with the rifle. Uh, really can't speak highly enough of these bullets. I, I think you should try them, not just because they're supporting the show, but because they are performing really well in the tests that I am doing. Uh, there's a lot of muzzleloader bullets out there, but uh, really can't thank Thor enough for their support of I Love Muzzleloading. And, uh, you know, talking with the guys over at Thor, the, the mission and the kind of people that they are, uh, they're really the kind of people that I will continue to support through my lifetime and, and my muzzleloading career, uh, apart from the sponsorship, uh, they've done right by me, and uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun working with them. So check out Thor Bullets. Not really a structured ad read here, but um, I hope that you, you you know check out maybe some of the practice bullets they've got. And uh, as you're planning for your fall 2022 hunts here, check out some of the Thor Hammer Bullets. This podcast is brought to you by Muzzleloader Magazine, the publication for traditional black powder shooters. Since 1974, Muzzleloader has been the leading magazine devoted to traditional black powder hunting and shooting. Each issue is jam-packed with articles on hunting, shooting, gunsmithing, do-it-yourself projects, living history, American history, book and product reviews, and much, much more. Muzzleloader Magazine is the best traditional muzzleloading magazine, bar none. I'd like to thank Jason at Muzzleloader Magazine for his continued support of I Love Muzzleloading and the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. I don't care what you're into. If you're interested in muzzleloading, this is the kind of magazine I think you need to check out. I've been a fan of Muzzleloader Magazine even before the sponsorship. Uh, I've always been impressed with what Jason has been able to put out with Muzzleloader Magazine, and it really means a lot for him uh, to be supporting I Love Muzzleloading and our efforts over here. Thank you, Muzzleloader Magazine, for your support. So we, we've talked a little bit about your work, but we haven't talked specifically about it. Currently, you're, you're working a lot more in powder horns, we'll say, than you are in, in, in rifles. But uh, what kind of eras are you creating your work in and, and what drew you to those specific time periods? Well, like I, like I kind of alluded to earlier, I got fascinated uh, by this screw tip horn that was in my dad's collection. And um, by the late 80s, I was... I was really interested in, after I'd been building rifles for a few years, I, I decided I really wanted to learn how it would be possible to to make an, a lathe turned, uh, you know, powder horn with lathe turned components and everything, because I, I had also always been fascinated by lathe work. Mm. And uh, when I was in grade school, every day when we went to the school lunch, we walked by the the high school shop and we could see down in there where the big kids were uh, working on the lathes. And that always fascinated me. And, and so I, I bought a, my first lathe at a gun show um, in Lakeland, Florida, uh, back about 1989. And uh, I thought, wow, I'm ready to go now. I know I've got everything I need. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, paid two hundred and fifty dollars for this lathe, and uh, nine hundred dollars later, I had all the parts it needed to actually do something. Oh, so, no. <laughs> so I was pretty naive, and and then I started to try to teach myself how to to make you know screw tips, turn wooden butt plugs, and things like that. And 
uh, looked at originals and and along the way in my collecting life I, I had started purchasing original uh, screw tip horns I I couldn't afford high quality Kentucky rifles because I had two little kids and was working a job and and everything and and my wife uh, was supporting supporting all of that and uh, so I'd started to buy. I found I could afford a 175 or $225 original screw tip powder horn to add to my collection. So I started adding a few horns in there to my, my uh, meager powder horn collection. And um, since I lived in Pennsylvania and was going to shows in that region, the styles that I saw most frequently, of course, were local or regional Pennsylvania style screw tip horns. And I started to ask questions of others and then try to figure out what was known about them and where where people thought they came from. And um, through that, you know, as my collection grew and my uh, uh, network of, of fellow collectors that also had similar horns uh, grew, we started by the late 90s, we were sharing um, as much information as we could about where these horns were thought to have been made or where they were found. You know, uh, and and we started to be able to uh, through some of the efforts of some others. Jay Hopkins is one that knew a mm. lot, knows still knows a great deal about powder horns. But and Jay and I are are great friends, and 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 we have uh, shared our thoughts and and learned from each other for a long time now. And um, but some others that um, are local Pennsylvania collectors: Joe Flemish, Tim Lubineski. Uh, Max Spencer, several others that I could think of, um, have all contributed to that. And and so, since I was focused on collecting the regional Pennsylvania horns, um, that's that's what I found easiest to try to replicate uh, in my own work. And and I found that I could, as as my skills improved and and everything, I found I could make pretty good. Uh, 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 representations of these original horns uh, through the work I did. Uh, another another thing that had a big influence on me that relates to this is that in the in the late 80s, the NMLRA published a series of five little booklets about uh, muzzle loading. Uh, uh, skills and trades and things mm-hmm. like that. The book series that Art is referencing here is the Journal of Historic Arms Making Technology, commonly referred to as the J Hat series. The National Muzzleloading Rifle Association has republished this series of great books, and you can purchase a new print or a, a new edition copy uh, of these books for a, a very affordable price, I'd say. Uh, they've been out of print now for several decades, and the original printing was very expensive, um, but now you can get the the reprinting. It's the same books, the same information that Art is discussing here uh, from the NMLRA at nmlra.org. I really encourage you to check out this book series really valuable information. This isn't an ad. I'm not being, I'm not being paid to say this. I'm, I'm saying this as somebody that loves this series of books. And, and I hope that you can check it out, add it to your Christmas list, uh, and add it to your birthday list, whatever. And, and one of the books, I don't remember which of the five it was, they examined an original Virginia rifle by Sheets from Winchester, Virginia area, uh, that was so pristine that they could still see that the tool marks in the brass 
on the trigger guard or the tool marks that were left in the wood and and it allowed the those that were had the chance to break this down and look at it it, it allowed them to see what was um considered commercially acceptable in the period that sheets was building rifles ah. in other words uh you could see that the customer would accept a certain amount of file marks on the brass uh, possibly even some relatively coarse marks left in the wood uh so it wasn't it wasn't try they didn't try to make things um absolutely molded plastic perfect if you will back yeah, then right yeah, uh, yeah okay and and so that analytical approach to looking at what what that rifle looked like when it was new i started to apply as i started to try to replicate different you know, powder horns from different shops in pennsylvania because as i looked at the original horns i got to handle some shops left scraper marks on the horn some some shops uh used sandstone or the like to to make the horn really smooth and and perfect you know hmm. and so when i do a berks county horn for instance or a york county horn i try to leave the same level of tool marks uh, that the originals have on them from my own observation and handling of the originals. And, and I think that gives me uh, an advantage over a lot of the other guys that are making screw tip horns because I, I kind of spend equal amounts of time both in the collector side of it and also in the, the replication side. Not everyone has the, the opportunity to handle as many originals as I've had over the years. And and that's given me a, a chance to really apply that analysis to, to how to make it look really authentic, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one thing and it, and it's great that we're able to to have these books and have, you know, high quality photographs especially today of these original rifles like the the KRA, the Kentucky Rifle Association puts out. Uh, those are really great, but it's it's always going to come second to being able to hold something original and <laughs> and actually see those marks. I mean, when I'm out at like the Rock Island Auction Company and looking at those originals, it's just so hard to do that justice, you know, just rubbing, rubbing your finger along the stock, you know, and seeing just how it was made, you know, like you said, seeing those tool marks and be able to feel those. And yeah, you have to, you have to almost play like you're a blind person and see with your fingertips as yeah. you're fondling the item or whatever, you know, and, and, that's definitely a part of the approach that I try to use. Hmm. So when you're when you're working in, in Horn, I guess specifically here, how do you balance the historic recreation and then kind of flexing your own creative muscles with it? I try to ask each artist that I talk to <laughs> this because I think it's a an interesting question because we're kind of dealing in uh, an art form that has a, a long and storied legacy, but then, you know, we as humans kind of want to apply our own spin on it sometimes. Well, sure you do. Um, I guess um, it, one of the one of the thoughts I have about my own personal uh, skills or abilities is that I've always been able to uh, look at an original and and make make a replica that looks very much like it proportionally shape wise so on and so forth um 
new designs, new fancy uh, outlandish designs are not something that my brain produces a lot of. I can look at something and, and make one like it. So I'm better at doing that than I am. So the creativity side of it that, that I think I add to it is the ability to, uh, you know, apply to, to, to come out with a finished product that actually looks has a real reality to it. Mm -hmm. uh, not everyone has the creativity to be able to do that. Right. Um, the, the other thing that I've, that, that where I get creative in horn work is, um, you know, the understanding that horn is, is a natural material, but it's, it's in effect the, the first plastic that existed in the world prior to petroleum based molded plastics. Like we are so, um, familiar with these days. Um, so you learn by applying different techniques to the horn material, how to make special items. And so, you know, I make, I make drinking cups, I make, uh, stemmed goblets. I, one of the things that I've made several of that, that not very many people, um, even have ever seen original of are these uh, multiple piece inkwells that I make these mm. things called penners, you know, and, and they're, uh, you know, they'll have four or five sections that are lathe turned and formed, but then threaded and they screw together and make together to make one self-contained uh, writing item. And those, I got fascinated with those. Uh, they're an 18th century authentic item and, and uh, so I, I, I make those and, and that's something that is a real challenge just to be able to figure out how to unique hold each unique piece of horn and make sure that it, as you make it, it stays on center and the threads match to the next piece that it has to mate to. Right. So those are the uh, those are the things that really um, drive me to, to, to work hard, harder to do better when I'm trying to apply uh, and figure out how to, how, how would they have done this? Yeah. Know? Yeah. You kind of have so to on. reverse engineer that stuff. And exactly. Uh, yeah. Boy, I, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but yeah, you're really, <laughs> that gets really interesting. It, it almost sounds, uh, my father has built uh, quite a few Windsor chairs over the years. And I, I spent a lot of time in the shop with him as he tried to figure out the assembly of those with the different types yeah. of wood and, and trying to piece all of that together. That is definitely a creative avenue because that takes a lot of thinking to get that figured out. Wow. Well, it certainly, yeah, it certainly does because I know a Windsor chair, I mean, the grain has to be lined up just right on the spindles and, and as it goes around the, the base of there, the seat of the chair, I mean, that, that's a, there's, there's a lot of mental uh, gyrations you go through to do that <laughs> properly. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. So you talked a little bit earlier that when you kind of got started here, you were, you were supporting your family and, and still working. Um, I get a lot of questions about that from, from people my age and, and around my age that are in a similar position now where they want to get involved in muzzleloading and the traditional crafts. And they're trying to balance that and all the things that we have to do with life. Um, you know, do you have any advice as somebody who has gone <laughs> through that, you know, for, for folks to weather that and, and maybe get to a point where they can spend a little more time doing it? Well, I, you know, I think a lot of it has uh, has to do with uh, the the type of family you have. You know, in my case, uh, my wife Sharon has has always been so 
tolerant of this aberrant behavior that I have <laughs> and and so supportive of anything I ever wanted to do. We've always supported each other's interests and given each other time and space to, to work on things that, that we wanted, we're really interested in. And, uh, you know, I, my, my time to build, to start making stuff really didn't start until after my two children were born, but they were both really young, you know, and not, you know, it didn't take a lot of time as a parent because they were still crawling around on the floor at home and they mm-hmm. weren't going places or doing other activities. And then there gets to be a period of years when they get to be six, seven, eight, nine to the time they're in high school there, you're, you're as a parent supporting them, you know, and, yeah. and doing, helping them do their activities. I spent a great deal of time as a Boy Scout leader, for instance, you know, over the years, <laughs> and that and that cut into my my shop time. Um, you know, my the first rifle I built. My kids, my daughter would have been just not quite a year old, and my son would have been three and a half. Uh, I built that rifle on the kitchen table in between meals, and every time Sharon got the dinner ready, I had to clear off the table. You know? <laughs> and then. Then the second rifle I built, I built on a folding card table in the family room. And then by the third rifle, I'd really come up in the world because I put a, a big board on top of our chest freezer in the utility room. And I was able, I only had to move stuff off that when, when my wife had to get something out of the freezer for dinner. <laughs> you <know>? so, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it, it's, it, you just, you make time as a young parent and, and, and you know, you, you, you spend what time you have, I guess, until, you know, your kids grow up a little bit and you, you find you have a little more time to yourself. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, the kids are only young once and, and you have to spend the time as a parent with them to, to help them form good values and be good people. And so it's, it, you shouldn't be an absentee parent building stuff at that time. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. So, you know, and everybody seems to start their family at a different point in their life. And then that, that affects how old you are when you get to that point, right. you might say, you know, I, I had my kids, uh, we, we got, we were, my wife and I were married when I was 23 and she was 21. And so we started, we were married younger and we had our kids younger. Uh, a lot of people today aren't getting married until they're 30 or 32. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. And, and that also plays into when you begin to have a little bit of not only disposable time, but also disposable income. Uh, you know, you can't start doing shows and, and making the expense of, of buying tables and getting motel rooms and traveling around until your kids are educated. And so, <laughs> you know, I know I found when, when I got my second uh, child out of college, then all of a sudden I had a lot more time and a good bit more money. <laughs> you know? so, You're thinking, man, uh, this was all here this whole time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you just you just budget your time. And, and I was lucky enough to have a job that uh, um, I had a good career. But I when I was I, I had accumulated enough savings, along with the fact that my wife worked full time as a teacher, I, I quit my real job when I was 57 and a half 
that was 14 years ago. And so I've, I've been able to apply as much time as I wanted to, to this hobby or this, this, uh, avocation since then. And, and so mm. I've, I've been able to, you know, I can traveled around and do, I do 10 or 12 shows a year almost. And, you know, teach classes, various places. And, you know, those are all things that I've been able to pick up and focus on a great deal more since I quit my real job, if you will. Yeah. So what does a, a typical day or, or week look like for you and your shop or your workspace? Is it kind of dedicated work or, or you know, where you're, you know, you get your nose to the grindstone or is it a little more relaxed? You can kind of come and go on projects. Well, yeah, that's a tough question. Uh, I, I, I know you'd uh, primed me on that one. Um, I probably spend two or three, the equivalent of two or three days a week working in my shop. Okay. Doing something uh, that relates to, the, to all of this. Uh, but that's not necessarily, that's not like an eight or ten hour day all at once, mm -hmm. three days and then four days of doing other things because you know nowadays in our life we have granddaughters we go to events and watch and so it and, and you know it used to be when i was still working full-time i'd be in the shop till 10 10 30 at night when i get home from work and I'd be <laughs> really pushing hard to get things done and yeah um and that would be almost every evening uh, nowadays and, and I thought when I quit my real job, I'd, I, I'd be able to have more time and I'd do it during the day. And then I'd be able to spend time with my wife in the evening or something like that. But as it turned out, I still work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we go somewhere during the day or yep. do run an errand or do things. And then here I am, it's 830 or nine o'clock at night and I'm still working in the shop. You know? so, <laughs> uh, it, it fits in as time as time permits. But. Uh, you know, we, we moved down here to Georgia a little over a year ago and I wanted to be closer to our granddaughters as they're in high school and, mm -hmm. and, uh, close. So we, we, we support them and, and we go, you know, we spend time hunting, we visit, uh, visit our daughter and son-in-law. And so, uh, you know, it, it still kind of catches catch can. And like I say, it's probably the equivalent of two or three days in the shop during mm -hmm. the course of a given seven day week, roughly speaking. Okay. Hmm. That's really great. <laughs> that's, that's really nice. Well, yeah, it's, it's really, I'm very fortunate to have been able to, to work my life out to be able to do it this way. What tips would you have for any aspiring horners or, you know, traditional craftsmen out there that might be listening? Well, I guess I have a couple thoughts on that topic yeah. and, and, uh, first off, for for guys that are into wanting to learn more about making powder horns or horn work in specific, I w I would definitely say uh, don't just stay at home and work in the vacuum. You know, the sooner you can meet other guys, other people that have a co similar interest, and start sharing your work and looking at e each other's work and and sharing techniques, that's the point in time that you'll actually be able to progress and move forward at a much greater rate. So find friends, go to events, meet people, you know, and take advantage of that. And ultimately all of this hobby is, it becomes really the people, you know, and the people, the friends that you see when you go places. And, but that's how you learn also. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I'd say is 
with the number of classes that there are around the country right now uh, in, in many of these different um, disciplines for muzzleloading, go to a class, take advantage of it. Like in the case of uh, the, those interested in making screw tip powder horns, which is my one of my major focuses, uh, you know, if you if you go to a screw tip horn class, you get to use other people's equipment. You get to learn how to make the moves and, and skills it takes to do the work, and it'll save you a great deal of of time and trouble, and probably buying the wrong tools or the wrong lathe, and then having to rebuy another one when you find out what you really should have bought. Hmm. So it saves you a lot of money to to get to a class in the sense that you learn what tools are really needed and and so on. Uh, so I'd encourage, you know, if if you have it any way possible, you know, get to a class and, and learn a skill from someone that is uh, more experienced than you at whatever the, the, the particular discipline is. I think the other thing that I'd say is that I alluded to some of this earlier, maybe perhaps, but I, I think you have to be committed both to to doing the best job possible, but you also have to be committed to learning what are the proper materials, what are the proper tools, how do you use them. Uh, don't be looking, don't be one of those that's looking for the cheapest imitation way to sort of do the job. Because mm. you, you will never get a true, real, authentic item made if you're always looking for the shortcut so to speak, right yeah there. and you know you learn that i know you know that or you know through your dad i know your dad doesn't he's committed to doing everything he does at a high level you know oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just think you have to have that drive within you in order to do that yeah uh, I, I see i see so many guys you know you you watch some of these muzzle loading forums and stuff that on the internet and there's always topics where somebody's looking, well, I, I don't really want to go buy the Aquafortis because I really don't really want to mess with that. What's something I could do to use as a stain that will look like Aquafortis? Mm -hmm. I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know, how can I buy a cheap lathe that gets me by rather than getting a lathe that really allows me to make hold the hold the item properly, hold it steady, and turn turn it, use it to make a, a part that is correct, you know. Uh, there's always guys looking for that shortcut, and and that always bugged me a little bit. Because right. <laughs> I, I, I've learned over the years there aren't shortcuts right. if you really want to make the item properly. Yeah, if you want to... If you, I mean, I've cobbed together a couple horns over the years and, and just kind of worked my way through as kind of a base level of understanding of, you know, how to make a, it, it holds, it holds powder, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> is, is yeah, what it is, yeah. you know, but there is that, even for me, there's that draw to, to do better, you know, just like we talked about, I think at the beginning of our conversation here tonight, there's something pulling me through and, and whether that was imparted on me from my father or if it's there naturally, or if it's just being around so many great artists that are out there, there's that pull to do it right, you know, and to, to go through that path of 
just, I don't, I can't really quite think of the word for it right now off the top of my head, but just like what you've been talking about, committing to that and finding yeah, the, yeah, the right process and the right methods to do that. And I've, I've been lucky to be surrounded by guys that, that had that same philosophy, Mark mm-hmm. Wheland, Alan Martin, both great rifle builders, uh, but they don't take shortcuts. Yeah. They're not looking for the cheap way out. Uh, it's like that comment that Tom Dawson made to me back in about 1982 uh, or so. I, you know, I, I can see you're willing to take the time it takes to do the job properly rather than hurrying to get it done. You yeah. know, and, and that's probably the, like the, the greatest advice I ever got. <laughs> yeah. And that's very obviously foundational to, to you and your work for sure. Do you think like, you know, for somebody that wants to take one of the classes that you put on, like for somebody like me, we'll say, you know, I can't, I can't necessarily afford to get, take time off to, to go take a class right now. Um, do you think there's value in me working you know, in my shop and in, or in my garage or what have you on trying to figure this stuff stuff out, or should I wait and save to go and until I can have some tutelage, you know, and, and have some, some kind of co-working space, we'll say. <laughs> well, I, I think there's certainly value in, in trying to do, do things at home or, you know, work along the way as best you can. Uh, as long as you understand that that's what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, it is a commitment. It's part of the commitment to being better is a commitment to spending the time, effort, and to some extent money it takes to get there. Um, for instance, I, I lived in West Tennessee for a couple of years. I lived in, and at that, in those years, it was a 700-mile one-way drive to go to the Kentucky Rifle Show in in Pennsylvania mm. once a year. When I lived in uh, Central Florida, it was a 1,300-mile drive, and now and it's not cheap. Uh, I guess I was lucky enough that I had a job that I could plan my vacation yeah. and afford to make those trips, but. When I think about the years I drove 2,600 miles round trip just to look at Kentucky's for two days, uh, you know, that's a, that took a real inward commitment and drive yeah. to do that. Oh, yeah. And, and um, so, you know, just hate to use that, use myself as at holding, holding myself up as, a, as an example in that sense. But I know a lot of guys that have done that. Mm-hmm. And then. On the other hand, you hear guys say, oh, I just can't afford to drive that far. Well, if you're really interested, you really can. You know, yeah. you can find a way to do stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you can make it work. Now, you can find a way to make it work. Yeah. For instance, uh, now this will sound like maybe I'm using as a commercial, but no, I, no. I really you're right ahead. don't intend it this way. Uh, the class I teach, uh, the classes I teach uh, in October every year at uh, Connor Prairie near Fishers, Indiana, um, you know, that's an expensive town to, to go to the, the, you know, it's Indianapolis. And so the, the motels are not inexpensive. Uh, and if you're there for a four and a half or five day class, you know, you, you, you got some motel bills, you're eating out in addition to the like $580 expense for the class itself. So it, there's a definite financial commitment it takes if you really are interested in in picking up 
you know, knowledge on these these oh, skills yeah. that the that the the expert teachers can can help you with. Um, so I don't know a good way to get out of that, but but one of the ways is have local friends that are you know find your find those local people that are doing the same thing you are at home alone and and get together with them and trade ideas and work work you know inter intermingle with that yeah and i don't that's probably the best thing any you can do when you really can't afford the vacation time or the cost it takes to get to one of these more expensive types of learning experiences yeah and I, I don't bring this up to, to combat, you know, the, how, how you've talked about this at all, Art, and I hope it doesn't come off that way. Uh, oh, not at all. Okay. No, uh, I get <laughs> no a, not at all. <laughs> I get a lot of questions from folks that are at the, like, at ground zero, you know, and, and trying to trying to figure out where to go and, and how to start. I mean, they're, they're, it's literally, you know, how do I find a raw horn, you know, or, or where's a... Um, a muzzleloader shop that I can order from to get started. So I, yeah, yeah, I, I try to ask questions in those perspectives because you know many of those people might not ever have the opportunity to meet you. I hope they do. I mean, <laughs> you're a very pleasant guy, and your work is very beautiful up front and uh, or up close, you know, in person. Uh, but I, I try to phrase that for the the folks at home that you know are are kind of at that point, you know, just getting started and trying to figure out what avenue they want to dive into, whether it's going to be rifles or bags or horns or knives or, you know, anything sure. that we yeah. all spend oh, yeah, our time yeah. on. <laughs> the, the same concepts or the same theories apply to all, any of those things that they might have an interest in. And, and like I say, I, the best thing to do is to find friends and, you know, go to a local gun show and walk around and you'll see other people maybe displaying the, the types of things you're, you know, most focused on and, and, don't be afraid to talk to them. Yeah. There were so many, like when I was starting, um, there were some guys that were really top artists that I would read about in Muzzle Blast, for instance, guys like Ron Aylert or, or the painter, you know, the oh, huh. uh, uh, David Wright. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? uh, I, or Jim Chambers. I always really admired Jim's rifle building skills and everything. This was long before he went into the, the lock business, you know. Mm -hmm. But I was... I was so shy, if you will. I was afraid to talk to those guys. And, and I, and I, over the years have become, they've each one of those have become good friends to me in one way or another. Uh, and, and what you'll find is that as good as those guys are at whatever they do, they have the same personal doubts and the same concerns is my work good enough how can i make it better mm -hmm. that that all of us do you know so if you if you can get over the hump and meet people like that and start expressing your interest you'll find that they'll open up and and help you uh, more than you'll ever realize you know so don't be shy uh get out and see others that that uh uh, have similar interests. I mean, that costs you nothing. You know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> to yeah. Do those kind of things. It's even know? cheaper today. You know, the, an email is free. <laughs> you know, oh, to get, yeah, get something yeah, started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I have. I I've always. Uh, you know, to any time I've had people in the various classes I've taught. You know, I tell them, hey, call me anytime. I'm more than willing to talk about it or answer questions. And and I think you'll find that uh, the vast majority of the guys that are 
you know, doing one of these skills are more than willing to talk about it. You know, don't be afraid to approach them. So kind of at the end of our conversation here, I always like to ask, uh, you know, you as the artist, you know, where can people find your work? And, and, and if people are out there interested in, in talking with you, is there an avenue that you'd like them to, to go through? Or is it more of a, you know, stop by and see me at an event kind of thing for you? Well, it's probably any of those. I'm probably the the quickest, easiest way you can uh, see my work or see or figure out how find out how to get in touch with me is on my own website. Um, you know, it's www.artspowderhorns.com, and you know I've got my contact information on there and pictures of some of the stuff I've made over the years, and uh, more than glad to talk to people with questions and and so on. Uh, you know, I do several shows a year, uh, the Gunmakers Fair in Kempton, the CLA show, uh, and several, uh, the, 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 gym, the show at uh, Joe Wheeler State Park in northern Alabama that Jim Parker puts on, hmm. uh, and, and two or three others that I, that I usually get to in the course of the year. So, you know, I'm around, and, and as you can probably tell by now that, you know, I, I, I talk a lot. So, <laughs> you know, usually you have to, if I'm at a show, you have to stand in line almost to get up and talk to me because, because uh, somebody will be talking and, uh, you just have to elbow your way to the front and ask a question or start talking. You know? yeah. So, you know, don't be bashful. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know earlier this year you, you had a, a book that you were selling. Is that still in print or are you sold out of those? Well, the, the book that I wrote on the, the, the Pennsylvania screw tip horns, shop made horns, um, was published back in 2012. It's been 10, been out 10 years now mm. and we are approaching, uh, completely sold out. The only remaining copies that are still for sale are, um, available at, at crazy crow trading post in, uh, down in Texas. Uh, they have a website and you can order them off of there, but I think we're, we have less than 20 copies uh, in total, I, I'm completely out of, uh, any that I have that I can sell at this point. Wow. Well, that's a good uh, run so, though. 10 years. Wow. Uh, I know it seemed, it, 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 I didn't know what to expect <laughs> uh, when I first, when the book first came out, you know, and pretty soon you realize it's not going to be on the New York times bestseller list, but, it, <laughs> but at the same time, um, it, it's a pretty neat book, I think. And, and, uh, if you're really interested in in understanding screw tip horns, I it's it's a, an excellent uh, book to get your hands on. Okay, I'll have a, a link for people to check that out at, at Crazy Crow in the description of this episode, so they can they can tap it. Okay, yeah, yeah. Maybe we can sell you out here. We'll see. I mean, the other commercial I'd give is, is if you're interested in uh, learning about horn work. Uh, uh, it's well worth it to join the uh, honorable company of horners or the known as the horn guild. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a it, dues are $45 and uh, you get three uh, 30 page full color magazines a year that are, that are focused totally on, uh, you know, horn work, horn history. Uh, there's, there's always information in them about where you can buy raw parts and raw horns. There's several vendors that, uh, you know, are, we list in there in that magazine. So if you're looking for where to get a, you know, a blank horn, that's a, a good resource to, 
to find out where you can order them from. Absolutely. Yeah. Your class schedule, uh, kind of going into next year, do you have uh, that kind of laid out or is that the kind of thing that will appear on your website as the, as the year starts to come around? Well, I do try to put it up on my website, but I've been working with Nathan Allen at Connor Prairie that just this week. And I think we have our date set for the classes at Connor this coming year. Um, we're actually going to do add add a class. There's going to be a about a two and a half day class in mid-May uh, that's going to be how to make just a very plain primitive powder horn just a simple powder horn if you will or a campaign horn okay uh and so that'll be the basics of just taking a raw horn and and fitting a hand-shaped wooden butt into it and so on uh that's going to be may 20 through may 22nd may 22 uh uh this coming may in 2023 and then the uh traditional arms makers workshop uh, where they'll offer several different classes, including my, my uh, advanced hornwork class, uh, is going to be October 14 through 20 uh, next fall. Mm, okay. And uh, we're going to do a, uh, we'll do a four and a half day class on on a screw tip powder horn style, and we're going to focus on horn true uh, authentic horns from uh, Tennessee and or Kentucky. Ah. Uh, there's and that's something we've never done before. And with uh, the with Jay Hopkins volume two coming out on his bone tipped and banded horns book, he's got some major chapters in there that cover those horns. And uh, if you follow uh, any, you follow things on the, the American long rifle site or some of the other Facebook sites, you know, Mel Hankla has been collecting a lot of uh, Kentucky powder horns and, and so there's some really significant historic horns that we can focus on in that class. I think that'll be a, a neat uh, class for people to to think about signing up for. And the other thing we're going to do something is new. It looks like in in the fall, um, as for our short two and a half day class, we're going to make a penny knife. If you know what a oh. just a simple, uh, you know, just a folding blade knife, no springs, no snaps. Uh, it'll just be a turned wood or horn handle uh, and a simple hand-filed, uh, not even heat-treated blade. Uh, wow. So it's just going to be a real, it would be the type of knife that you'd drop in the bottom of your hunting pouch, you know, to, to cut patches with or in a pinch uh, uh, clean up a deer or something like that, you know. And, and so it, it, that's going to be a, a neat little challenge for people to try this fall also, I think. Oh, yeah. That's another one of those puzzles to kind of reverse engineer. I love that. That sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. Then the the other, uh, I, I teach two classes a year in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania with Roland Cadle at his shop there. And that's always, an, that we do one in April and, and one in November. And... Um, you just need to check the Village Restorations website hmm. in order to see the dates for those classes because we're still kind of establishing them right now. Okay, good. Well, that's something for, for people to keep their eyes out on. And and as I see them kind of come up, I'll do my best to, to get them out and get the word out to try to see some new folks in there. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'd be neat. It would be neat. Uh, those are good times. Connor is a great location. It has a wonderful facility, clean, well lit, uh, 
mm-hmm. good equipment, <laughs> you know, it, it, if you really, it, it's worth it to, to pay what it takes to get there and, and take one of those classes because it's a good experience there. Oh, yeah. Um, the other thing that's uh, sort of in the works but not settled at this point is uh, there's a group out on the West Coast near um, um, Seattle that um, – the, the the Washington State Historical Gunmakers yes. Guild. Uh, they are they always bring in uh, someone that's a, a fairly well known expert, if you will, at making some items uh, out there for their annual classes. And um, I'm not sure exactly. I, I know I've been approached to go out there. I've been out there twice before. Uh, but I've been approached to to go out there again, possibly in 2023. But that's sort of up in the air right now. So okay, that's another one that may develop. Wonderful. Well, you're going to be have a very busy year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for for an old guy, I'm going to be pretty busy. Yeah, <laughs> jet setting the jet setting horner is what we'll start calling you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Art, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that we haven't had a chance to cover here? No, I really appreciate the opportunity, and it's been a, a, a great pleasure to me to to have you, one, ask me to do this, and two, have the conversation we've had for the last hour or so. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. We'll have links to everything that Art has discussed here, all of the all of the books, all of the classes, all of the websites that we've talked about here. I have a link in the show notes for this episode, as well as at the blog post associated with this episode at ilovemuzzleloading.com. I try to make it as easy as I can for you to uh, to find this stuff and find this information after you've listened to the episode, uh, so you can go back and reference it. So you can always find it with the blog post at ilovemuzzleloading.com. I'd like to thank Art again for coming on the show and talking with me. Uh, these conversations are just really one of the highlights of my week. And uh, in sitting down and talking with Art, somebody I've, I've admired his work for years and, uh, and passed his table many a time at a show, uh, looking at his horns and, and the beautiful rifles that he has on display. It was, it was really nice and really kind of him to, to catch up with me a little bit at the CLA show and agree to be on the show. I really can't thank him enough. If you aren't familiar with Art's work, I encourage you to check it out. Please check out, try to find a copy of the Pennsylvania Horns of the Trade, screw tip powder horns and their architecture. If you can, if you're interested in this kind of thing, it's a great read. Uh, the copy on my shelf is is well worn now, <laughs> which is which is a good sign, I think. Um, it's not, not sponsored, not being paid to say that. I say that as somebody that that cares about uh, uh, the stuff that Art is doing here, the research that he's putting in, and, and I'm just excited to see it get out there. You know, it's a, a big driving thing for me here, uh, and and I love muzzling as a project and as a whole here is to, to share this information. So I hope that uh, even if you've never heard of Art, if you have heard of Art, uh, I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation and, and it gives you a little insight maybe into to Art's background and, and what drove him, you know, kind of from being a second grader taking a powder horn in for show and tell all the way to uh, a master horner and, and arguably one of the most respected horners of the contemporary era, I would say, um, you know, I, it was just a really great conversation. So thank you, Art, once again, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, you know, you guys make all this possible. Really appreciate all the kind words that we've received uh, in reviews about the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, we're working hard to keep this going, get some more interviews going and, and, 
kind folks like art really make it easy. So um, <laughs> if you see art, thank him. Thank him for me. Uh, I know I will be the next time I see him at a show. Uh, I'd like to thank Thor Bullets and Muzzleloader Magazine for their sponsorship of the program. Uh, it really helps. That covers the hosting fees for the podcast. And, um, you know, and that's, that's nice. I really appreciate that. You know, they're both American-owned companies here, you know, local family people that are interested in and care about this sport and the, and the hobby and the community as a whole. Uh, I'm, I'm proud to have them sponsor the program and I can't thank them enough. So as we look kind of towards the new year, I hope to continue with, uh, with what we've done this year and, and try to do better. Uh, that's something I'm, I'm trying to do as we head into 2023, try to do more and try to do better. Uh, so I appreciate you all being along for the journey. Um, it's become very evident to me now that many people out there, many of you really love muzzleloading and it's really, it's really great. You know, I wake up every day to an inbox full of, of emails and questions and conversations and I, I do truly appreciate it. So I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.